So, hello and welcome back to another episode with Paul Clark, Chief Technology Officer at Acado, and David Lane, who's the Professor at the Edinburgh Centre for Robotics and a bit of an entrepreneur himself. Is but this the issue with the, um, are we talking about the last mile problem again? Almost the internet has that, where mm. you send your information somewhere, you get some information back, but what's happening there end is very much a black box. So mm. maybe you, you'll get your package or your food or whatever, but you don't really know. You're not really connected to that information. And I was thinking about, we've, bought, we've come back to houses in the built environment again, but when I see that plan, I don't know that that's accurate. When I see information about that property, I really don't know. I, I don't have that level of assurance. I'm confident I'm on their website, but I'm not confident I can't be certain about that information. And perhaps that's one of the bridges that Twinternet can solve is that greater level of assurance of information that we're looking at about that property at the other end. Yeah, and I, th I think, I mean, that's an interesting idea. There's lots of ideas we can think of about how the, the Twinternet will get used. I think the point I wanted to make was that there are ethical concerns just like the dystopian effects of, of uh, social media, that we need to think about. I need groups of people thinking about that and being on it as new products and services emerge in this in, in this brave new world. I don't have all the answers. That's a good question. I wanted to. I just wanted to pick up on something that David was saying because we've and, and connected to Henry's actually is this. We're talking about projecting forward of some of the outcomes of. Of technology, but I think there's another way of thinking about it in terms of you know, the mobile phone and the internet is that. How, keep integrating things together because technology is becoming smaller and cheaper. And I think an interesting first step is, you know, the, in, the inclusion of LiDAR onto the iPhone and some, some other phones and the iPad and what have you, that medium of, of collecting richer and richer media about where we are, what we're doing. How far is that mobile phone going to go? And it's now been, a, it now can capture 3D reality. I just wonder what, what other things can we integrate into a phone to make it more or integrate into the things that sense us. So I, I just want to play with that thought, you know, what's, what's other things, you know, what's a big technology right now that can be, you know, we're going to have MRI scanners in a phone. What can we squeeze into these things? Oh, the ECG has started, hasn't it? There's one on your, the Apple has a one point ECG. Maybe a, one of the things a phone should be doing as a, as a smart machine that lives with you, I mean, literally lives with you, is get to know you and, and start building a model of you in terms of what, you know, what does normal behavior look like? I mean, I, hmm. I know that I struggle to read menus in a poorly lit restaurant without my glasses. Well, why doesn't my phone, why hasn't my phone learned that? Why hasn't it started to, uh, why doesn't it automatically increase the size of the type or, uh, maybe remind me to, I'm going to the restaurant and I should take my glasses with me. That'd be another thing. But, you know, this whole thing about building a, a kind of a, a model of its owner so that it can actually be a, a smarter kind of assistant, actually help you do things, which, I mean, we're on a journey towards that. But I think there's a lot more that we could be, be doing there, including things like spotting when maybe there's an onset of some sort of health issue that I have. And actually, maybe I should get something checked out or whatever, because it's, it's noted that perhaps 
signs of onset of dementia or whatever it might be. You know, so I think these are all things. It's not necessarily about adding more technology, but it's adding more capability to these devices. It's interesting to go back to, to Simon's point and that point, actually, on, on the idea of a smart machine in your pocket. I do think your smartphone is your gateway to the twin internet. It, it has to be. The idea at a basic level, when I leave my house, my lights turn off because my phone has left that, left that, that smart network. So do you think we will have a device that connects us to the twin internet that allows us to query things and learn about our infrastructure? Could, well, you could be on the head. Smart glasses. Or just chip in the back of the neck, like the Matrix maybe. Because at the minute, this thing is literally your entire life in a, in a lot of spaces. It's not so much for, for people who are listening to the podcast, he is holding up his mobile phone. He is, he's flapping his phone around. Um, so do you think we'll have a smart device that connects us to the twin internet that allows us to access these systems and these connected twins? Possibly. I'm very interested in how, you know, at the moment, our concept of collaboration is, is the ability to connect with somebody over a mobile phone or other device, and whether it be on a video conference call or a normal phone call or over social media. But true collaboration needs other kinds of tools. And I think part of what the Twinternet you know, can deliver are, is the ability to have, to create immersive virtual worlds in which people can collaborate in richer ways, whether it is to, as we were talking about in the last episode, ideate and design and test you know, new kinds of smart machine, but to be able to solve other kinds of problems and be able to assemble those parts of that virtual world are relevant to the collaboration that you want to undertake relies on you being able to stitch these together mm. you know, um, rather than build them from scratch. That needs to be almost a kind of a, a plug and play or a drag and drop, you know, kind of way of assembling these and then be able to step into that virtual world. And also that's going to be really, really important for education and for training. You know, we've we've seen what the limitations of trying to do homeschooling are. And I think if we had, you know, richer virtual worlds in which students could meet and access to virtual laboratories and, and things like that, of course, it wouldn't be a replacement for, for interacting in the physical world, but it would be better and richer as an experience than just being, you know, on a video conference call. And I think a, a lot of what has limited the ability of people to project into the future from the beginning of personal computers is current capability. So a lack of memory, people just assumed that we'd never be able to perform these great feats. And a lack of bandwidth, I think, has led people to think that, you know, we wouldn't be able to video conference and that we wouldn't have these virtual worlds. And I think the same applies to our sensing in that sense and how we would interact with those worlds in terms of physically holding and touching things. And I, I think that's a really good way of looking at it. That is possible, that virtual world. We don't actually have all of the pieces, but I think it's it's a fairly linear progression of sensing and of visualization technology for us to have more immersive worlds and to be able to interact with basically, I mean, I'm going to cut to the chase. I want cyberspace. That's what I want. I want cyberspace. I want to be able to have some level of physicality to the internet and be able to explore things that I might not have been able to see otherwise. And Google is the window into the internet right now. But 
I've done a lot of Yeah, but it is effectively, isn't it? It is the window into the internet. Maybe you use Reddit. Maybe you use some Ask other. Jeeves. Uh, yeah, exactly. I mean, that's still going strong, right? <laughs> but, but ultimately, you are you are funneled through your medium, your search medium, to what you find, and the agenda behind that organization directs what you see. So, I would like to see some sort of agendaless or freer, more open, more uh, user empowered way of searching the internet, but perhaps the twinternet. And I think that that sort of barrier that we almost don't see, you don't really see the Google barrier, but it is there. They are showing you what they what their algorithm wants you to see, not necessarily them directly. And I think they've hidden behind that over the years in a way. But we can't let that happen with Twinternet. I don't think we can have one government, one organization, one person's vision of what is most appropriate for you to see to direct us in the way that Google has with the internet. So are we talking dark to internet now? The dark to internet. What, what about in these virtual, if these virtual worlds get sophisticated enough that actually you, you could go to work in them? You know, you could solve problems in them. You could earn money in these virtual worlds. I don't mean the kind of things that happen in <laughs> just in video games, but actually by solving problems, you, you know, there is, there are, there, there's a currency that can be created. And so now you're, it isn't about these virtual worlds being a replica of the physical world and how somehow uh, one is the master and the other one is, is just the replica. You know, the, the, there's a degree to which things can happen in these virtual worlds that maybe you can't do in, in your physical world. Uh, maybe even these, physical, these virtual worlds have different laws of physics. Maybe, uh, maybe you have a virtual world that's a bit where your currency is to do with how many people you know, or how many people you can meet in one day, or your ability, your ability to be an influencer. I don't know. Mm. Sounds, uh, sounds like a Black Mirror episode or like Ready Player Mirror One, episode. doesn't it? But the point, but <laughs> well, coming, back to, coming back to reality, I think do we, the, the fact that you can actually use these virtual worlds to solve mm. real problems means that it is a place that, you know, potentially uh, where, where real stuff and real work will happen that has value back in the physical world, which you can then bring back. I think so. An area for adding lots of value internationally would be something like net zero and managing climate change. Absolutely. That sort of thing is something that we are, as a species, we I think people are very good at uh, trouncing us uh, as a species, and I've been one of those people. It's happened slowly, so we haven't noticed it effectively the the old apocryphal tale of putting a frog in cold water and boiling it and the frog doesn't notice not actually true somebody did that test uh frog did jump out but the analogy stands because that is how we behave so we need some next level response to be able to deal with that and that to me is something like the twinternet so is that a step towards the key theme of this podcast, which is the concept of the planetary twin. That's almost like I planned it. <laughs> um, so as a starting point, it'd be really good to hear what a definition of a planetary twin is, just to start the, the conversation. What is the vision rather than the definition? I think the vision is probably better, a better starting point. One of the things that you know these interconnected digital twins do is they help you model and understand uh, you know, complex systems of systems. And, and there really is, you know, no bigger system of system of system of systems than, you know, our planet, both in terms of the way human-built 
systems work within that and affect it as we are living through with uh, the impact of you know what humankind has created and in terms of climate change but also in terms of modeling the natural environment and what the effect of pulling different levers might be in terms of trying to intervene with climate change and to try out different scenarios for um, changing those physical systems that we've built but also models for the collaboration that's going to be required you know between different countries because clearly solving net zero and achieving sustainable development goals that's not a national challenge that's a that's a truly planetary challenge the effort that is underway at the moment the european union is about to start a piece of work developing digital twin of the earth to revolutionize the climate forecast so they're starting to do that and it's basically running a lot of different climate climate models right models of the atmosphere the ocean the ice and the land together and that's a that's a planetary digital twin but i don't think they're doing it using the sort of infrastructure we're we're talking about here they've got models and they're connecting them and they're starting to run them together but they're not thinking about this in the sort of infrastructure way that we are where you know there's there's a formal way that you can do the connection and it scales they'll they'll, theirs won't scale i think and that's that's the difference and indeed if we had these tools available now you know the middleware the digital commons um, that would make their job a lot easier. So, but it's great to see people are thinking that way, and it's also interesting to see how that comes about. The, the atmospheric scientists, our international community, our environmental scientists, our international community, and they're used to working together. And the science community is a good starting point to try and get something moving at a global scale because it's independent of countries and nations and politics, and you know all the things that usually get in the way and create friction. It raises a, a question just to sort of understand. You said, you. Know, the thing that we're talking about is different from a twin perspective to what the European Union is is building. And I, I just is it an, does this analogy work? So if we think about when a company will survey people about its products. Now, in the old world, it may have sent out a survey, collected that survey information, you know, people's opinions on a form, and you could do that through the internet as well. You just collect people's information through a form. That's sort of model number one. Model number two is you'd observe their behavior without them knowing through the internet. You look at their behaviors through how they actually traverse the infrastructure. Is this a similar thing? So is this planetary twin from a connecting computational models and physical models and the models that we get from a traditional meteorological sense is one place to look at it, but when we're, we're building it from a different sense, we're building it from the, the actual usage of of those things. Is that an appropriate analogy? Sorry if it's a bit stretched. I'm not sure I fully understand it, to be honest. <laughs> Please take this question. <laughs> yeah, sorry. I, just trying to understand the difference between, you know, how they're building their model and their digital twin against the thing yeah. that we're talking about, I guess, is the, the difference. Yeah, I mean, they're, they're climate scientists, environmental scientists. So they've got models and they they run on big machines and it's lots of physics, you know, about ocean processes and mixing and, you know, temperature changes and temperature gradient. I mean, blah, 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 it goes, right? And so they've got those physical models. And obviously what they're trying to do is connect them and link them to data. So they've data from satellites, there's data from buoys in the ocean, there's data from planes, drones, you know, and more. So that's why it's a digital twin, because they've got the model linking it to the data and they run it together. Um, I think my point really was that had, if we had the digital commons, um, uh, we could help them do that because they could take each of their models and connect them together through this middleware. 
or through the sets of standards. And it would just make it easier to scale. Uh, so that you know somebody who in Japan who's got another model could could work alongside somebody in you know the UK or the US uh, or China even who who are signing up to some of these environmental goals. By the way, uh, President Xi announced recently. Isn't that good news? Uh, That's great so, news. So, wow, you know, and so it, it it just reduces the friction because it'll be a lot of work for the Europeans for any of them to do it with the existing tools they have at the moment. They don't connect. They're, they've been developed in silos. Um, so it just makes it easier. You can either build these kind of big top-down kind of models, or I, I think what we're, Dave and I are both talking about is the idea of the bottom-up approach, which is where you, know, you are able to take lots of you know, small models that perhaps you know, are built for other purposes and are in day-to-day use, but you can then assemble and glue them together into much more complex models. And I think what, one of the reasons why that approach is, as well as being more scalable and sort of... Uh, distributed is important is we need these models to be in everyday use. We need to make sure that because they're solving all sorts of problems on a daily basis, they're getting, we, we have the kind of the verification and the validation, you know, necessary to make sure that we can trust them. Because otherwise, if we start gluing them together, we're just going to start getting, and we can't trust them, then we're just going to get ever increasing levels of, of nonsense. And I think that's also why we're going to need sandpits and living labs uh, in which to test out these digital twins before we let them out into the wild, just as we do for smart machines. We need to be able to, uh, yeah, we need to take, you know, for a test drive and subject and stress test them and subject them to lots of different, you know, conditions. And then once they pass their kind of digital twin MOT, then you can kind of let them out into the wild, get them doing useful things. But of course, the real world changes, so the twin has to be maintained. And I think that's why it's really important that it's in everyday use, because then you, if you start to spot that it's kind of going off kilter, people can adjust it and, and tune it and maybe work out that there's a key parameter that it, it wasn't being fed with that now it needs to have in order to uh, uh, correctly uh, model whatever it's modeling. So um, as always, we need living labs for all sorts of things, including digital twins. Okay, so you've discussed the point of living labs there. It'd be interesting to get a, a little bit more under the skin of that. And and what are living labs for people that don't know? Dave. Thank you, Paul. A living lab is a space for me where, where like the one you're living in at the moment, where we do experiments. In our case, it's with smart machines, but it doesn't have to be where you're able to try stuff, but it's with people and with real systems that that are involved in the interaction, but it's done in a way that's safe so that if stuff goes wrong, it doesn't matter. Uh, And so you can do experiments that are controlled to some extent before you then let let whatever is out into the real world and try it there. So a living lab is something that's instrumented. And so the data that's used by the digital twin you know, is matched by data from the living lab. So you've got the basis of comparison to do what Paul was saying, which is to check the digital twins, you know, doing the right thing and predicting what actually happens in the real world, all that kind of stuff. And to the point that Paul was making about having living labs, you know, it's the source of ground truth. You, you in order to certify or qualify your digital twin, you need to make sure the mo- it's a model and the model has to predict what the real world does. It's a big issue if the model doesn't predict what the real world does, because if you let it go in the wild, your system will be designed, if there's an error between real world and model, 
you know, in signal processing, this is standard in, in where estimators are designed. You rely on the model, not the real world. You assume there's an error, a noisy measurement, and you rely on the model. And but of course, if that's not the case, if the model's wrong, then you, you're depending on the wrong thing. You see what I mean? So it's actually a very dangerous situation if you if you don't if you have a digital twin that, that doesn't predict correctly, and you assume it's because there's an error in the world. So these are the sort of certification things we have to do. Yeah. There's um I, I've recently discovered an interesting thing called pink noise. Does everybody know about pink noise? No, I'm going to assume not. Different to brown noise. <laughs> Uh, there, there are uh, four types of, of noise, but I'm going to just discuss pink noise. So uh, pink noise is, in an auditory sense, it's the sort of meditation music. That's, that's the sort of thing. Picture that in your mind. I might put some into the edit. But in reality, uh, human society often behaves in a pink noise way. So, for example, completely random, you're rolling the dice every time something happens. But in a pink noise environment, say the economy... 80%, 90% of the time, you know what it's going to do. And then it's every now and again, there's this almost logarithmic curve of probability where you're fairly certain you know how things are going to behave. But there are these edge cases and these sudden occurrences, stock market crashes, national, international pandemics, that sort of thing that change how these systems operate. And it can be very difficult to test for those sorts of situations. So there you go. Now you know what pink noise is. Welcome. But, but I think that's a really important point because I think that's why what's one of the characteristics of a living lab is it's all about diversity. It's not about reproducibility. You know, in a test bed, you want reproducibility because you're going to certify something and put it through its paces and know that when you tried something, you know, for a car, maybe that the last time you tested a car, you tested it in exactly the same way. The whole point about a living lab is, is you want diversity in there to subject whatever it is that you have in the living lab to a degree of kind of chaos and randomness that is part of that sort of, which tries to tease out some of those edge cases. That's why it's great to have humans in living labs, especially for smart machines, because humans are very good at introducing kind of doing unpredictable thing. You expect them to open this door and they open a different door. You expect them to do one thing, they do another. And that's great because uh, you're subjecting your test subject to a, a range of different cases. And I think that's what we're going to need for these digital twin living labs too, is bringing in that range of different kind of conditions to tease out the sort of the 100-year the wave type effects that mm. um, where you wouldn't want it to fail when it's in the real world doing real things. It makes me think one of the ultimate living labs is maybe what we see with smart home devices and how they're being tested out and verified on us all the time in some capacity. I'm not sure if that, that parallel there, because I'm thinking one of our earlier parts you mentioned is around how a mobile device or a smart home can start to make predictors on health. And I read a piece on the news last or this week or last week saying about how they've got a level of certainty from people's coughs detected by devices to detect whether or not they have early stages of COVID. So you can imagine kind of looping back to that part of the conversation, your smart speaker, kind of that world of Alexa's, Google Homes, where we are being tested with all these new features all the time, could start to start to bring those to bear. Um, Hello, Simon. I think you might be coming down with COVID. Would you like me to call you an ambulance? Or I'd already called it for you and they arrive because it's detected. <laughs> yeah. Henry, you seem to be going quietly mad. We have already called the men with the jackets. They're going to take you it's, away and you'll be safe now. It's funny, and a, a slight side note as well is um, 
I was speaking to a, a friend the other day and he was telling me he heard something on a radio channel and I'm going to kind of try and give a quote of what they were saying. And it was along the lines of, if you were to go back in time and to your grandparent or someone of that, probably two generations, and tell them something of the future, what would you tell them? And this person said, well, I'd, you know, I'd say to them that in my hand, hold it with my mobile phone, I have access to all human knowledge and history, but I mostly spend it time using it to watch videos of cats and you're like, <laughs> it's quite true, isn't it? We're talking about this ability for huge collected ecosystems, the power of the um, the physical, digital really converging. And then the use case that people come back to is watching videos of cats on YouTube. Google Earth is another example of that. What's the first thing everybody does on Google Earth the first time they see it? Go look at their home. Go look at their home. First thing, interesting, it's the first thing I did in Google VR, actually. I went in and stood in my street just because... I don't know why. You could go and stand on Christ the Redeemer. And they, do show, they do blow your face out. So when you saw yourself in your dressing gown shouting at the Google camera, it was mm. it was blurred out, thankfully, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah it was. A bit weird to see that. <laughs> Sorry, dude. Oh, I was trying to, trying to build up the humour. Revisiting what we were saying about the planetary digital twins. Let's see if we can touch on that slightly more before we um, we get to the end of our time we've got. So okay, having... Other, I've, got, I've got something. So it, it, it's one of the things I wanted to touch on with the Living Labs because it's the... So the unique thing about introducing the, the twin internet and our planetary twin into the Living Lab world is that ability to simulate and our ability to digitally rehearse things in a in a safe way, but then it's connected to reality. Because I wonder the just the profound impact of if we, if we think about how technology is developed and research is developed and, you know, this concept of the lab and TRLs and it going through this sort of industrial process of products and services coming to being commercialised. I just wonder, in our twin internet, do we just sort of instantly creating and refining products in real life, instead of having to go through this R&D process that we have from an industrial scale, I guess, David. <laughs> we need living labs to test and validate, without a doubt. I don't think it matters whether it's an industrial process or, or anything else. Whatever you're using a digital twin for, and the more digital twins become pervasive, you need to have this as part of the phase. Because don't forget, the, the important thing about a digital twin that distinguishes it from a synthetic environment or a simulation is the fact that it's running alongside the real world and you've got the data from both things synchronized. That's the thing that really distinguishes a, a digital twin. And actually, I was reflecting to Paul's earlier comments about, you know, talking about going on holiday in, in, in a digital twin and and indeed making money and having currencies and stuff. I mean, that already exists to some extent in Second Life. It's still going, right? But it's not a digital twin because it's not anchored in anything real. You know, it's just somebody else's you know, in invention. So there's, there's a difference. And it's that anchoring in reality, which is key. And the Living Lab is part of that. I didn't realize Second Life was 17 years old. <laughs> 2003 yeah. was launched. That takes you into the interesting area of, you know, can digital twins lead to immortality? You know, I mean, can a digital twin of yourself maybe persist beyond your lifetime? And, yes. and actually, is that something we want? Do we have to make sure that, you know, when we die, our, if personal digital twins are built for things like healthcare and acting as an agent that you can send out into the world and do your bidding, whether it be keeping you safe or... Um, things that you want to delegate to, you know, go and please renew my insurance or, you know, smart agents. But if they get more and more sophisticated over time, well, it raises all sorts of things. It's the equivalent of, uh, 
deep fakes, you know, will I be able to tell the difference between, you know, the real David Lane and the digital twin of David Lane? But also, you know, what do we feel about our digital twins living, you know, uh, beyond our lifetimes? You know, these are ethical questions we're going to have to answer. Something to add to our donor cards. Yes, exactly. (laughs) Well, it's a little bit like, uh, like a really small version of that is these trading platforms that allow you to mimic the trading decisions of like professional traders and, and mirroring them. And it's sort of uh, projecting that forward. There's little little nuggets, but on that exact part, because we've already seen the the, the deep fake and your digital twin persistent beyond. So wasn't it last year, Google, who's got a lot in this podcast, had that duplex service where they were phoning up restaurants on behalf of you through Google Assistant and mimicking being a human and asking for reservations and different appointments and stuff. People were getting tricked by it and felt quite slightly violated that a computer was phoning you pretending to be a person and you were answering and responding, but it was all on command from I could be a microservice. You said to your assistant, book me a hotel, book me a restaurant, and they went off and did it and pretended to be somebody. What happens if that pretended to be you? <laughs> what if they what if it then went to the hotel instead of you? Okay, that's the digital cool. hotel within this planetary digital twin. Yeah. How rude. I think we're we're starting to trip into the world of will AI, will a true AI try and destroy the planet or destroy us as a species? If it knew it was going a little bit down a bit of a rabbit hole where. Uh, my head goes to planetary digital twin in the environment goes to Gaia, the self-regulating process that keeps the Earth safe. And, and people are now saying, well, you know, the, level, the levels of pollution are such, the, and climate change are such, that it's beyond what Gaia can do to self-correct. You know. But I think if we had a planetary digital twin that was doing, doing the environment, that would be a really interesting thing to test about, is self-regulating properties of the Earth and validate. So I, for me, that's quite exciting. And to Paul's earlier points about should you persist after you pass you know consciousness in the digital twin think about that consciousness we're conscious but your digital twin isn't but what is consciousness thank you very much for joining us today david lane and paul clark it has been enlightening thanks very much everybody for coming uh, it's been me, Henry Femby Taylor, Simon Evans. Thanks again. Jonathan Monkley. Thanks, everyone. Neil Thompson. David Lane. Thanks, everybody. It's been a pleasure. And Paul Clark. Goodbye. Thank you. Thank you very much for joining us. You can find us on LinkedIn. You can find us on Twitter at The Digital Twin. And if you look on SoundCloud for The Digital Twin podcast, well, you probably already have done because otherwise, how are you listening to this? I've been Henry Femby Taylor. Thank you very much for listening. Goodbye.